Welcome back, you guys. This is Jared, and you are listening to the Back Road Exploration Podcast. I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Mike. Mike, you want to say hello? Hey, this is Mike. Tonight, we have a really special guest. I've got Brent Smith with us on the line, and Brent has his own YouTube channel. He is a fellow Utah, and we had the chance to go on an adventure with him and get to meet him and his dad and some of his kids through uh cathedral valley and we actually talked about that in our first episode i we just really hit it off well with brent and his dad and his family and i've been wanting to get him on he has a great youtube channel where he's breaking down a lot of awesome trails here in utah and also doing trip reports and so you're going to want to go and check it out it's eight life great four by four and i'll put the exact link in the show notes but that's eight with the letter uh, excuse me that's eight with the number and then l-i-f-g-r eight again and then four by four so you're gonna want to go check out his channel subscribe to it um you're going to be able to see a ton of really cool trails he actually inspired me to go and do long canyon i've seen a bunch of different Um, videos of it but i watched his video of it and made me want to go and check it out so brent thanks so much for jumping on with us hey thank you thanks for having me and yeah again it i realize how hard my channel is to find based off a license plate but you're doomed with what you start with i guess and and your (laughs) video your video inspired me not to do long canyon in the winter (laughs) hey exactly i man it's so funny because I had watched a bunch of different videos of it, um, and it doesn't really look that steep at all. And you get there, and in reality, if it wasn't slick, it's not steep. But I got there, and yeah, it was way too slick and caused a little bit of damage, but nothing that couldn't be repaired. So that's the the good part. Luckily, we didn't slide off the edge because it is a, a really big. It is a really big. It's not necessarily like a cliff because uh, it's not like a sheer face. But if you went down it, you would not survive. No, you'd need a new vehicle anyway. Yeah, for sure. So tonight, we really wanted to kind of jump into, one of the main reasons I want to have Brent on is Brent knows a ton about Land Rovers. He owns a Disco 2. He's had a Range Rover in the past. And on his channel, he's actually done three different videos where he goes in-depth into the new Defender. And the, the Defender is kind of an interesting thing for us in the United States because we've really never had access to them. In my opinion, they're almost like a unicorn vehicle because they're so beautiful, yet they're so expensive. It makes them almost completely unobtainable. Absolutely. And they, you know, I've even, every once in a while I'll see one like on KSL, which is our local classifieds, and it'll be like, I don't know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, and you go and look up the same one like in the UK or somewhere else, and it's like ten thousand. And but because of the import laws and things like that, and in the United States, I believe they were only sold for two years, and that was because they basically made like an exemption so that they could pass our safety laws. It w- Correct it was, me if I'm wrong. It there. was the um, airbag laws in the late '90s which killed the import. And they didn't yeah. they didn't want to. And in fact, it was um, the airbag laws that made them kill it in the UK. The UK kind of got rid of their exemptions and, and their front crash rating also. And um, it, it stopped it. Which right. is not necessarily the the best 
picture to, to put on a vehicle. Yeah, this vehicle's just not safe enough to drive. You know, one thing you don't want to do is watch Defender rollover videos, like if you blow a tire on the highway. Um, the North American spec Defenders, you can, um, for a layperson, the easiest way to identify them is if there is a, a roll bar cage on the outside, which kind of resembles Jared's um, roof rack that you see on his videos, except it's heavy steel. And they put that on there because the original Defender doesn't have the rollover minimum safety specifications that you do stateside when they sell it to the world. And so they bolted this cage on the outside to allow them to import them into the United States. So if you've got that cage on the outside, chances are you've got a North American um, defender. Right. Cool. Well, I, and I, I really think that it's important to talk about Land Rover and just their overall fit in the off-road 4x4 overlanding market. So really they have been in this space for a long time and the Defender has kind of been their primary platform for those types of activities. So they kind of use them, they call it like a farm truck um, type of, of model. But in general, they've been used for a long time for off-roading, exploring. They're, it's a classic look that you see like the Camel Trophy trucks and uh you know just like your picturesque safari look is often you know people inside of a land rover defender and in the united states we just haven't had access to them and so we're really limited to our knowledge just in general about them unless you're really a, a diehard diehard land rover enthusiast which is why we wanted to bring brent on because he's owned them so why don't you talk a little bit about your history of land rovers and then we can kind of talk about the position of this new Defender within the marketplace. Yeah, so um, my real actual, I guess, love affair, you could say, with Land Rovers really started when um, I was an early teenager in the early 90s. It might have actually been in the late 80s. It, um, I had a four-wheel drive magazine and opened it, and they were covering the Camel Trophy. And a lot of people who were kids at this time who were in the off-road environment knew about this um, this trek that they did in third-world countries, and um, it was a competition. It was absolutely phenomenal. There's a there's a YouTube video called um, Land Rover: The Camel Trophy Years, and it's like ripped off a of VHS, and it goes from the 80s all the way to the end of it. And it's about an hour and 15 minutes. And if you love off-road and Land Rovers, check out that video. It'll explain it all. But anyway, at this time, the Defender or the Discovery 1 first came out. And that was available in the United States. And I just loved this vehicle and what they were putting it through in essentially what was stock trim. Other than some safety stuff that they added, all they really did was what they call the Camel Cut, which is um, a cut of the sheet metal in the rear that allows for greater articulation over the stock vehicle. Other than that, they were essentially stock, doing everything they did in the Camel Trophy. And um, at about this time, you started to see Discovery 1s hit the United States in places like Moab, and we went annually. So I, I really just always wanted a Discovery, and um, finally just bought me one. And, you know, the Discovery, we could talk for... I have a 40-minute YouTube video on all of the potential issues with buying an old Discovery. So we'll leave that aside. But needless to say, the Discovery 2 almost 
forced Land Rover to leave the United States because of its reliability issues, which mainly stemmed from the V8 engine. Um, at the time, it, the V8 engine in that vehicle is from a 1960s Buick block, and they've just modified it. And the tooling at the end, because they knew they were canceling going to the LR3, they didn't update the tooling because they didn't have a lot of money. And it caused a bunch of head gasket failures and expensive repairs. And it became one of the most unreliable vehicles of all time in the United States market. And so I was hesitant to get one, but the price was right. I was in the market and I grabbed a 99. It became to be awesome. And I love that so much. I decided to get a modern Land Rover, which was a 2003 Range Rover, which again, that year had the BMW engine. And, um, so it was kind of a don't buy this. So the depreciation was super low and I absolutely loved it too. So I've had experience with the classic Land Rover and the, um, the newer, the newer style with the air suspension, independent front and rear. So I think, and, and I've done technical trails on that. So while, while I'm not an expert in all the newer ones, I, I think I have a pretty good background on what Land Rover was, what they are now and where they're kind of going. So Land Rover has a pretty good reputation, at least in the Discovery 2 era, and, and you know maybe 10 years ago. They have a good reputation for being off-road capable vehicles, and they also have a little bit of a bad reputation for being unreliable, as you talked on. Uh, how have those held up as far as you're concerned, both their reliability potential issues and their off-road ability? Now, right out of the box, the Discovery 1 is probably your go-to, and, and that's your Camel Trophy workhorse. And the main reason why is the Discovery 1 is just a little bit smaller, which is nice for the type of trails we do. And it has a, um, it's the LT230 transfer case. It is the heart and soul of what a classic Land Rover and a classic Defender is. It's the same transfer case. It has a 3.7 to 1, if I remember right, someone will... Well, if this was a YouTube video, they'll correct me in the comments. But hmm. it, it's nearly a four-to-one transfer case, like your Jeep Rubicon. And they were throwing right. they were throwing these in in the early '80s at the time, right? They were coil sprung before the Jeep TJ was even dreamed of being there. So, so they they had a leg up there. And this is a, a all-wheel drive or full-time four-wheel drive transfer case with a center differential lock, high and low. You had a full floating axle in the rear just like big trucks or a Land Cruiser. I mean, it was made. When they went to the Discovery 2, they made a couple changes, and a lot of them I liked. They they started traction control, um, the very first version of, of what Jeep would have or A-Track for Toyota. So they had your ABS traction control, and it was kind of a, I don't want to say it was super aggressive. It was almost a passive system in that you needed a lot of wheel spin to get it going, and it got a lot of bad rap compared to the Discovery 1 because of that you really needed to learn how to throttle modulate in order to get the ABS sensor to do its thing. And once it works, it actually works really good. But the biggest thing that everyone harped on is they threw that same transfer case in, um, but they, the engineers or whoever, they said, well, we don't need a center differential lock because we have traction control. So you basically had a low range all wheel drive. There was no locking center differential. Um, you can check YouTube videos. I made a YouTube video on why this is bad because you get one wheel in the air and you can be stuck. 
with a right. unlocking center differential. But the beauty was is that center differential was still there. So as time progressed, people found ways to connect the linkage. In fact, on mine, I, I bought on eBay a Discovery One shifter and connected it right up. And, and the light works even. Like it was never there wow. from the factory, but I can lock in the center differential and the light lights up. Like it was there. They just never put it in the shifter. And in 2004, they put it in there. So if you're looking for a Discovery 2, the early 99, 2000s is your best bet. 2004 is um, um, arguably a good one too. When, when you hit 2001 through 2003, those were the, the, the years that almost sunk Land Rover. You have a couple issues with, with brake pumps which or um, oil pumps, which should be addressed by now. The head gasket issues are prevalent. Um, we can go into that, but, um, the other thing is, is they stopped putting the actual differential lock on the transfer case. So if you buy one of those and you want to off-road or, or do some overlanding and you want that center differential lock, it's not there. You have to spend a thousand dollars or whatever it is to actually get the gearing hardware and bolt it back up. So those are some things to look for. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think that so when what specifically about the Land Rovers besides I, you know, you had mentioned that you had seen these other you know these cool Camel Trophy videos and things like that that kind of pulled you in what else pulled you in to say like man a Land Rover just seems like what I want so um, I, I I admit this when I do vehicle reviews is I I found um, my 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 Gmail account has XJ in it that I sent you guys to connect. And that's because I really love the Jeep XJ Cherokee. And I always wanted one. I was searching for one. I made that email account when I was in the process. And I ended up with yet another ZJ Grand Cherokee instead of the classic XJ. And I think what made me go to the Grand for the second time, I had had one previously, is I, I admit I am an interior snob. I spend all of my time in the interior of a vehicle and how the interior speaks to me means more than how the outside looks. I really love my leather seats. If it has heated, all the better. If it has air cooled, which I don't have the money for now, but eventually I can't wait till I get, you know, how I fit in a vehicle and how it speaks to me when I turn it on and move is what I love. And when you get into Discovery 2, there's just something about it. They took an Italian designer who designed the Discovery 1. What, what was happening with Land Rover at the time is they were independent when the Discovery 1 was made, and um, they were short on cash. So they upgraded the Range Rover to the P38, which has its own share of issues. That probably even worse than the Discovery 2. But they, they tried some new technology on the P38. It had some issues. But when they made that Range Rover, they had the old classic Range Rover, you know, the boxy classic, if you remember. And, mm -hmm. and they didn't know what to do with that. So what they essentially did, it had a 100-inch wheelbase, is they took the body off because it's body on frame. And they took this Italian designer who designed the, um, who designed the Discovery 1 interior, and they bolted it back on. Now, at that time, the... Um, Range Rover, I believe, had a um, a fluid coupling um, a fluid coupling transfer case, and they put the LT230 back in, probably to save money, which was better because the LT230s helical geared, and if you've dealt with fluid couplings, I I'm not a fan of those. They don't seem to last. They're supposed to be more smooth, but for the stuff we do, we want geared um, over even chain driven. But anyway, so 
the Discovery One was really a Range Rover with this radical body on. They put the stadium seating on. You have the Alpine windows. The doors are kind of Defender-like. It's very British in that it's narrow and tight. And some like that, some don't. It's kind of a intimate feel. The lighting makes it a greenhouse. It You can see the road perfectly. I mean, it just speaks to you. The leather is high quality, which I really like, meaning you can set it in your garage and even 20 years later, you open and it's like a furniture store. It's like RC Willy, like brand new leather smell still 20 years later. I mean, it's not vinyl at all. It's just high quality. And, and for me, mainly, it was how you felt inside it is really what sold me on it in short so you're yeah. going for fancy i can't I can't argue with that <laughs> yes well, and i think i think that that really kind of explains kind of what land rover has done in the united states which is they're a luxury vehicle and they're a luxury vehicle that happens to have this off-road heritage that they have tried pretty hard to stay true to when in reality it's kind of an they're really in an interesting place in my opinion because they have made this shift where they are a high-end luxury vehicle and yet they're incredibly capable and well-tested off-road and so it's kind of an interesting thing because you have a lot of people who are buying them like the lr3 the lr4 and now the new discovery that really have no intention whatsoever of ever taking them off-road, yet they have all of this off-road heritage and history. And that's where um, kind of shifting our conversation over to the new Defender, where I'm most kind of puzzled a little bit with the Defender because I'm not exactly sure. I guess I've come to the consensus that the, the goal of it is to replace the LR4, even though technically the Discovery whatever, I don't know if they're calling it Discovery 5 or if it's just the Discovery, is the replacement, quote-unquote, for the LR4. But to me, it's not because it's a totally different vehicle. It was way more shifted, in my opinion, towards the more Range Rover-esque models. And now they're bringing over the Defender to say, like, hey, we're still going to create this off-road capable, high-end luxury vehicle, but it's not necessarily like a the Range Rovers or the Discovery. but So what are your thoughts on that, Brent? So I'll, I'll kind of approach that. You, you hit a number of things. Um, I think a lot of the image of the Defender in the United States would be, the negative image, I should say, would go away if they'd call it the Discovery 5 and, and just call this new Discovery a new thing. I definitely agree with that. But to understand it from Land Rover's perspective is is a little bit more complicated and we'll shift to that Range Rover I bought that 2003 which was one of the first of what enthusiasts call the modern Range Rover. You have the classic Range Rovers which are your solid axles, coil sprung, and you have the modern Range Rovers which are independent front and rear and generally with an air suspension. So what happened at this time is the is Land Rover was sold and BMW bought it. And they knew they needed to replace that P38 Range Rover because, I mean, you're using that Buick block aluminum V8 with tooling issues in this expensive luxury four-wheel drive when the Grand Cherokee at this time in 2003 is is running that 4.7 liter with a ton more horsepower. And, and you think 2003, that's your 100 series Land Cruiser with the venerable 2UZ FEV8, which we all know can go forever. So they had some issues with the powertrain. So BMW said, hey, we need to make a Range Rover, a luxury Range Rover, 
We want an on-road performance to be the best SUV possible, but we do not want to sacrifice any off-road credibility, and it has to be better off-road than the outgoing Range Rovers before it. And that was really tough. And, and, and I'm an engineer by discipline, and that's what I got in college, graduated in in college, and went out in the workforce in. So this was an interesting story to me because the engineers had an unlimited budget. So what can you do with an unlimited budget? I mean, even Jeep with the Wrangler really doesn't have this. And so the engineer said, okay, we got to beat this on-road spec, but maintain the off-road credibility. How do we do that? Well, we want to go independent front and rear just for the on-road performance, but we got to maintain the off-road performance. So we're going to do what we did with the P38. We're going to have the air suspension, but we're going to tweak it a little bit and we're going to cross-link it. And cross-linking is the magic of Range Rover. I'll say it now, or of Land Rover. If anyone buys a modern Land Rover, you can get lifted coil kits now for an LR3. Do not do that. If you are going to deal with the reliability issues perceived or actual of a Land Rover, don't make it a Grand Cherokee. Just buy a Grand Cherokee. The beauty of the modern Land Rover is in that air suspension. Live or die by it. It is there. And I'm here to tell you that thing is absolutely amazing. By cross-linking, what they do is they have this valve. Even Jeep in their um, it, Jeep in their air suspension doesn't do this. But it has this valve that um, when one wheel gets pushed down, it shifts the um, air to the other wheel and makes it force articulate. This happens in four low at low speed. And it articulates like a solid axle. And they created the bladders so that you can actually have pretty good articulation for an independent front and rear vehicle. And see, I bought my Range Rover just to see what it was all about because I like vehicles and I like going through them. And I was intending to do it as a daily driver. But you'll notice if you watch my channel is I did a San Rafael swell trip with the Disco 2. And then I haven't really driven the Disco 2 anymore. And that's because that Range Rover was so good off-road that I never really wanted to take the Discovery anymore because it was so comfortable on the highway, so comfortable off the highway. I maintain that the modern Range Rover is they're the L322, which is um, the Range Rover from 2002 to, I can't remember, 2011. They kept it for about 10 years. That platform is the very best all-around off-road vehicle you can buy up to four rated trails. The problem is, is you can't really modify it. And we can get into that. The LR3, you can do more. But they, the BMW engineers really nailed that. And so what the Defender I see as is an evolution of that rather than an evolution of what the classic Defender was. Yeah, the classic Defender, you look at that. You know, we talked about it a little. It's it's an old farm truck. It's old. It's it's big. It's reliable. It has old tech. It's got solid front and rear axles. You know, locking diffs, and which is which is hard to beat. It's interesting to me how all the all the companies have tried to switch away from that. Um, when in a lot of ways, it feels like if you want the best off-road capable vehicle, the best thing you can do is give it solid front and rear axles, and locking front and rear diffs and center diff, you know, he, and it's he, hard to find any vehicle that has that. It's interesting that everyone has gone away from that, but I think you gave us a good theory on maybe some of why that is the case because everyone wants a little bit better 
on-road performance. Yes, and and here's what makes me mad because I like, you know, give it to me straight type thing. The excuse Land Rover gives enthusiasts when they were talking about this direction the new Defender went is they said, we cannot be viable, and you'll see this in internet articles, we cannot be viable as a company if we just updated the old Defender. We cannot be viable. We can't make money. And I, I don't subscribe to that at all. I don't believe that at all because the proof is in the sales numbers. If you want a classic Defender in America right now, a 2020 that they don't make, it's being sold right now. The Defender 90 was a short wheelbase, the 110 was your four-door, and the 130 was a pickup. And Jeep is doing that right now with the Wrangler. You can buy your Defender 90 with all of the modern safety stuff and solid front and rear axles. You can buy your Defender 110. You can buy your Defender 130 and kit it out just like you could the 1980s, but with all modern stuff. And Jared's got one in his garage right now and they're selling over 200,000 units and the Rubicon trim is not cheap. And so to say that there's no market for this ultra rugged off-road vehicle, I don't buy that. And I'm kind of interested to see how my theory plays out with the Bronco because Bronco, they want to be better than the Jeep and the new Bronco is going to have everything that the Wrangler does or the old Defender except for that solid front axle. And because of that, the reviewers are going to say, oh, you, you could write the review right now. Oh, the 2020 Bronco, great. You get Ford Ecotec power. You can remove the top. It's what everybody wants. But that last little 3% edge is going to go to Jeep because of the solid axle. But it's better on highway. But most people, they want that performance. I mean, kids grow up thinking, hey, I want to buy a Corvette or whatever sports car. And they never go to the track. They just go because on paper, it was cool. You know, there, there's a lot of us. I mean, uh, how many of us really do the full potential of our Wrangler even? But you buy that because, you know what, it's it's good price and it's the best. So I don't really like that excuse. I think Land Rover missed an opportunity to actually compete with Jeep on the high end of what technology Land Rover has to put into a solid axle vehicle. So I'm kind of sad they didn't do that. Yeah, it makes you wonder, you know, maybe they just really don't want or think that they want, or maybe because they're a luxury brand, they think they don't have the same market as Jeep. But I agree, Jeep is is putting out extremely capable off-road vehicles. I love my Toyota 4Runner. I think it's an awesome vehicle. But there are times I wish it had a solid front axle because it would be more capable off-road if it did. My first impressions, actually, of the new Defender, I like it. Um, But what's so puzzling to me is if I was a diehard Defender fan, which I am a diehard Defender um, fan in that I love to see the Defenders, I love the look look of them, there's some really cool um, guys out on Instagram and stuff who have built some up in, in the UK and in Wales and things like that where they're absolutely incredible to some of the stuff they're doing in them. And what is so puzzling to me is I don't see those guys buying this new Defender. And so that's where, where what I don't understand about the Defender is I don't really feel like it has a fit in the marketplace other than, I guess I should say that. It, it just not as the Defender. I really think what you had mentioned earlier is true. 
It's that they need to call this new defender just the Discovery 5. And then it actually makes sense to me because it is an it is a probably and from Scott Brady and uh, and and Matt, I can't remember his name. Um, they did a hardcore review driving multiple days in Namibia off road. And both of them said, basically, of all the current vehicles on the market, the only thing that's more capable from the manufacturer off-road is the Jeep Rubicon. And everything else, this Defender is better than. Now, obviously, they're not doing a back-to-back comparison, but they are. They have driven and been in way more vehicles than I have, certainly. And so I trust their opinion in that aspect of it. But I, I just I just don't see those hardcore Defender enthusiasts going out and buying this. All I feel like it did is made their Defenders worth more money. Yes, yes. And, and, and I agree with that. I, I think they definitely decided that we're not going to go back to the past. We're going to put everything up to the modern Defender, um, the modern Defender spec. And I think that trip to Namibia and also some of the trails they were doing on Moab were actually quite impressive to me for their prototype mules when they were getting them out there. And they were out there to be spied on. The time of the year they were in Moab, they wanted people to take photos of them doing these obstacles and where they were in Australia and places like that. And that's very telling to me on on how confident they are in this vehicle. And and one of the thing I really liked is is driver fatigue was a high priority for them. They engineered this so that you could go to the field and back without being tired. And that's what I liked on my L322 and noticed the most. And that's what Scott Brady and those guys harped on on this new one. And the fact that the engineers have actually um, unofficially basically admitted they've tested this with 35-inch tires with just a um, spacer lift. And um, honestly, I was pricing a couple of them out. The Land Rover USA website has kind of changed. I was able to get them for a little cheaper in the spec I wanted. I don't know what's changed. But you're looking at, for the cost of a GX460, which really should be its competition, for the cost of a new GX460, you can get one of these with the off-road package already on, all of the new terrain response, which includes a rear locker. You get the roof rack, which has like an absurd like 320-pound dynamic load capability. You get payload that's like 1,900 pounds. And onboard air compressor, automatically, you just punch in the dash, I want 15 PSI. And then when you get out off the trail, you type in 40 PSI or 38 or 35, and it pumps it right up. You get a onboard water system. I just saw that. That was new, actually. That wasn't when they originally came out. So you get an onboard water system. And um, I think I was missing. Oh, and a winch. And so basically, for what we do, up to, you know, I said the, the Range Rover was the best up to a four-rated trail. The Defender now could capably get you over Golden Spike, which is about a seven on the Moab rating scale. And that's what I like to build my stuff to. And you're done. I don't have to buy a roof rack. I don't have to buy a winch. I don't have to buy, it's all factory warrantied. For the Explorer, the Defender is right there. I mean, everything you want from the factory, you don't have to modify, you don't have to lift, it's there. Uh, Maybe their tire spec, I don't really like. I wish they had 17 inch rims, but 18 inch, I think they come with Duratrax. So that's not even a bad tire. 
right from the factory, sixty between fifty-seven and sixty-five thousand. So right there, between where a Jeep Rubicon ends and where a GX four sixty begins, and that's actually an incredible price point for what you get. Yeah, it seems like they put out an awesome vehicle. Um, I spec'd one out when it first came out just for kicks and giggles, and I love that it has a seven seat option. You know, I'm always any vehicle I ever look at, that's that's a requirement for me. And that's one of the big downers I have with the Jeep is I can't fit enough people in it. So that's another thing I love about it is there's enough room. It, it's super capable. I love the – you can get it from the factory with a really cool um, cargo box out one of the side windows, which yes. is pretty cool. I, I think they, they've they really marketed it well as an as a off-road capable vehicle. It's just a matter of is it enough? Is it too expensive? I, I wonder how it's going to do. In the states, we'll have to see. It will the market buy into the air suspension? That's really a big question I have. Um, you're always worried about a bag failing. These these bags nowadays are kind of they're proven technology. They they've got them on the new Hummer replacement, the Oshkosh. Can't remember the name of it. It's all air suspended now. What Land Rover did magically on this that I didn't get until. Scott Brady kind of broke it down in their review is apparently it's a dual bladder system. So you don't lose articulation when you raise the vehicle up. And that's incredible. You know, I, I think, I think it's going to do amazing. Um, my wife has a degenerative disc problem. And so I'm a huge solid axle fan from a performance standpoint standpoint, but all of my vehicles now are solid front or it, the Range Rover was solid front and rear, other than the Discovery 2. And that's because my wife's back can get hurt. And if it gets out of alignment, she's on the bed for multiple days in pain and can't really do stuff. And so to enjoy the outdoors, that comfort is very important to me. And so even though my heart says, you know what, I want a new JL, and I want 37s on it, and I want the roof rack, and I want the rooftop tent. I want it to look like the Jeep Africa concept, which I just love, or buy an old Defender, which I just love. The truth is I probably may end up in a new Defender just because of that performance to comfort factor, especially if it depreciates. I mean, geez, then it's a win-win, right? Yeah, this that's the best case scenario is that their uh, their reputation precedes them in resale value and it and it tanks like crazy. Um, yeah, I that's the other thing that that I've noticed in our trips anyway is a lot of times people are so worried about the absolute best off road capability, um, but there are a lot of vehicles that are extremely capable off road and could do so many amazing trails. 90% of what you're ever going to want to do. Absolutely. And I think that's a great podcast idea for you guys or, or get me back or what, but we could talk for hours on where do you go when you buy a vehicle? Cause modifying a vehicle is, is a hobby in and of itself. And um, I, I've got ideas on that and I'm sure you guys do on just kind of picking to a specification on what you're trying to go to and meeting that. And, and I look at the new defender and Right from the factory, everything I want is there. One concern I have, and I want to go to the, the factory and see one of these, is Land Rover is starting to put the intercoolers for their turbos, because everything's going turbos, in front of the wheels. If you look at the Discovery 5 with the bumper removed, there are intercooler radiators like right halfway to the midline of the tire. And I'm sure you guys are already going, 
oh man, what's that going to do to my approach angle? And you're absolutely right. And, and the engineers in that have made hints that you can't really modify the new Defender bumper because of cooling, quote unquote cooling. And I don't know if it's because of ducting or if they've spread those um, radiators out in front of the wings. And if they did that, that might be a deal breaker for me because we come off, off camber quite a bit in Utah terrain on an angle and you kind of nosedive on that corner, right? And you want to hit the tire or the bumper. You don't want to crunch the bumper into a radiator and be dead. And, and that is probably my biggest concern that no one has ever really addressed. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by them. I, when I was looking into what vehicle I wanted to get, I was really, really interested in the LR3s um, for a couple of reasons. And something that I think that Land Rover does really well, and you had kind of mentioned it, is the cockpit feel is really nice. You you sit really high in the vehicle, and so and they're really boxy and tall. And so I really felt like you could see so well. You're up high. You're looking kind of the, just the position of the seating, and then they're they're extremely comfortable because they're a luxury vehicle. And it's funny because that's very contrasty to the Jeep, where I don't feel like you sit super high. Your visibility is terrible because the windows are all tiny. But so I almost went the opposite direction in picking up my Jeep. But to me, the LR3 was a super intriguing vehicle, and 100% I talked myself out of it because of the air suspension. And since then, I've had the chance to talk to. Um, three or four guys that have owned, you know, LR3s or LR4s. And it's funny to me that they, um, one, they're able to pick them up used incredibly cheap because people, they depreciate extremely quickly. Um, and around, you know, 100,000 miles, you're going to start having issues with that air ride suspension. And so a lot of guys are that are using them for really heavy exploring and off-roading or picking them up for you know, anywhere between like five and 10 grand with around a hundred thousand miles on it, which blows my mind for a vehicle that started out at 50 or 60. And they are basically just buying, you can buy a replacement kit. You put in the new airline air ride suspension, you buy, put in new bags and they're running well. There's a guy who follows us on Instagram and on YouTube. Um, M Lars, he picked one up for super cheap, um, because it was in limp mode when he bought it. And I can't remember, he told me how much it costs. I can't remember the number, but it wasn't that expensive. He replaced it all and has since driven it for another, I believe, 80,000 miles or 90,000 miles. So he's at like 225, 250,000 miles. And he had to put some a mild amount of money into the air ride suspension. And so I actually wonder like how much, how overblown it is. I think I know for me, I was super intimidated by like, oh man, if this breaks, it's going to be such a hassle. And now that I'm hearing more about it, all these guys are like, it's really not that hard to service, to mess with. It's It's, not that big of a deal. It's ridiculously easy to replace the air suspension. In fact, um, I was going to look at a LR3 uh, is my next vehicle when I went to Centerville Land Rover and bought my L322 on the spot after driving it if i would have bought the lr3 chances are i'd still have it because the lr3 gives you um the mod the modifiability that the range rover didn't have you can buy sliders for it you can buy bumpers for it you can get the armor that i needed to meet that specification to cross the golden crack as far as technical ability goes that's as far as i want to go the golden crack i want to be able to cross it 
on on Golden Spike, which is a trail in Moab, or and then maybe Moab Rim if I'm lucky. And usually they kind of go hand in hand. And I could never do that in the Range Rover. It, it's really easy. But on the flip side, there's some computer issues I had. I'll, I'll tell you the the bad part when I sold the Range Rover is we went to the winter jamboree down there in sand hollow and we did a trail and everyone was amazed that we did this took this range rover on the trails we did and i had like blizzak snow tires on it on crappy 19 inch rims it was ridiculous the stupid rim size and the tires i had and we did everything good but then i got a one of those dreaded air suspension faults and i had a computer with me and i hooked the computer up which was cheap too and, and found out that I had a software or a sensor issue. I reset it. Everything worked. It came back in. And I told my wife, I said, we're locked at the ride height we're at. We have our, it was bone stock at the time, LX470 at home. We can swap vehicles and finish the trip. And she said, let's do that. So we drove home. It never left me stranded. And we finished the trip in the LX470. And I was nervous that I'd have this failure all the time. Well, the problem was, is I bought a sensor and the sensor was bad right out of the box. So I thought I'd swap the sensor and everything would be fine. Well, I swapped the sensor. It didn't fix the problem. And so I started chasing wiring down. And that's when I decided to sell it. And I sold it to a buddy. And in typical Land Rover fashion, if, if a Land Rover knows you're going to sell it, it'll spring leaks or start to break. Um, <laughs> I, I turned into, we were meeting at a Walmart p- parking lot. I turned into the Walmart parking lot, turned in. And I get a ding for the check engine light, and it goes into limp mode. Like, it's never done limp mode. I'm meeting a buddy to sell the vehicle. I've got a transmission fault. And um, we talked about it, and and the buddy kind of trusted me with, with my history of vehicles. And I'm telling him, I'm saying, I don't think it's a transmission fault. I think it has to do with this. And... Um, but But it could be this. So I'm willing to knock you down some price price point in case it was a transmission error and he said i'll take that risk and it was like your buddy so he got it for a song and here i am now doing every issue and we joked about this at cathedral valley my lexus had every rare hardly any hundred series has this issue mine had every single one of them i put thousands of dollars in parts into my toyota and i called up my buddy a while back and i said you know, I'm just curious, how did that Range Rover do? I was stressed that he was going to have thousands of dollars of repairs. And he said, you know what? We thought about it. I bought a sensor in the rear. I said, I did that. He said, well, mine worked. So <laughs> air suspension fixed. Cost him 50 bucks. And then he said, we decided before we did the transmission fault, he bought a, a solenoid kit, you know, because that was the fault. But I also had a misfire. He said, the misfire was easy. I thought I'd fix the misfire first. He changed a coil. It was like 50 bucks. He put $100 in that, and he's driven at 20,000 miles. No issues. Wow. It was those two parts. And he's like, how have you been doing? Well, I had a brake booster that I had to get a, a rebuilt one for $700. I had, a, I had gas spewing out of the gas cap in Colorado. It cost $500. Actually, I think it was six or 700 for all the parts I had to replace on that. I had issues with the suspension and rotting tires, and I had to put the lift kit on. I mean, I put thousands on the Toyota. So, so the downside is, is if you're not mechanically inclined, and I said this on my other video, Stay away from Land Rover. If you're going to have a buddy at a shop do it and pay shop rates, it's going to cost you a lot of money. But if you like playing with Legos, that's how I like to say it, and you can follow Lego instructions, 
by the LR3, man. I mean, especially that that Ford AJV8, the Jaguar AJV8, that's proven 200,000 mile plus motor. I mean, that that's that's the steel on the market right now is the LR3, but they're really getting hard yeah, to find. Yeah, they're getting they're getting really hard to find where they're not already high yes. mileage and so Yes, the LR4 V8s, um, they get timing guide issues, and those are expensive. I'm starting to look at that. If you want to enjoy the modern Land Rover off-road with all the best options, you really need to consider the first-generation Range Rover Sport, which is essentially a shortened wheel-based LR3. Everything else is almost exactly the same, or the LR3. And and that's your best bang for the buck right there. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, with the with the new Defender, it's supposed to be releasing sometime this year, and um, I am really intrigued because the the design to me that's the hardest part that I've had with them isn't even the off road capability because we've kind of already covered um, the fact that you I have a Jeep Rubicon, which is arguably from the manufacturer the most capable off road vehicle that you can buy, and. I do not push it to its limits, even close. It, by far, its limitations are me as a driver, not it as a vehicle. And so I'm not super concerned about the off-road capability of the new Defender. I think that it's going to be fine, especially for the type of off-roading and exploring that we're doing for the most part. The hard part that I've had with it, and it's actually the look is growing on me, but it isn't that really amazing classic like just military brute strong look that the old defenders are and that to me has actually been the hardest part in accepting it is i'm like it doesn't look like an awesome defender anymore no that front end like a lot of people really gets me i think they nailed the side and i think the back works really well but that front end i don't know the modern sleek look that they do on that bubble front um it it, it, i don't know what it is to me it looks like it's kind of a snub-nosed front, and I think that's why the engineers have to put the radiators in front of the wings. It looks like a front-wheel drive vehicle. It needs a longer it's hood. It's too short. Like a, yeah, like a rear-wheel drive vehicle. And if you had a longer hood, you could place the radiators where it needs to be. And even the headlight design looks good to me. I just think, I just think, it, I think it's too short. To me, I think that's what's getting me on the new Defender. And, and and because of that, if you if you lengthen to the hood line, and you could pack the intercoolers down or up higher, and across that hood line, you could make the front a little more aggressive, and I think that would fix your your look issue. But yeah, I I totally agree on that. And you know we're 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 expecting the Defender, and the Defender is an icon. I mean, you can imagine if if Jeep made the next generation Wrangler look like the compass, right? I mean, there would be rioting in the United States if that ever happened. They could do anything, but don't make it look like the compass. And with the Defender, they took some Defender cues, but it really looks like a modern Land Rover. And that's that's kind of a no-no in the design. If they would have called this the Discovery 5, everything about this vehicle would be perfect. Everything. Everybody would love it. Look look how hardcore Land Rover is going with the Discovery 5. They went from the LR4 to this with integrated air. I mean, they care about off-road market. But then you take the Defender 
and say, hey, look what they did with the Defender. And you're going, you made a streetcar, right? I mean, it's it, it, the market. Especially marketing. since in all the promotional material everywhere, it's got 20 or 21-inch wheels. That's the one thing that drives me nuts about yes. Land Rover and a lot of vehicles. I'm pleased that you can get at least 18s, but you do not have an off-road vehicle if you have 20-inch rims unless you have 37-inch tires, which these can't run, right? Absolutely. Like, I mean – you can't. You're just gonna ruin it. I mean, does any of us have 18s in our fleet? Is your is your Forerunner a limited? Do you have 18s on it, or are you running 17s? I got 17s. Yeah, 17s. I mean, we're sitting here saying it's so good that Land Rover at least put 18s here, and none of us run 18s. Like I had 18s on my Lexus and ripped them off so fast. I'm so happy with my 17s. It's very depressing that 17s couldn't fit. That's another mistake I think they made. Yeah. Yeah, to me, 18 is like the largest viable rim you can do. And I don't prefer it, but it's like, okay, at least it's kind of capable. And and that's not what they run. You know, yes. they want to run fancy street tires. That's what they, they want your potentially amazing off-road vehicle that they're telling you, yeah, you probably should never take this off-road. Yep, you got to be into the five or 6,000 option tier to get the um, Duratrax on them and i'm not even sure if they're a lt rated duratrac too they're probably a, a p rated that they put on most vehicles so your sidewalls pretty bad anyway so you're going to want to junk those tires regardless so it's kind of sad and and you know you're running steel wheels they do that i guess to hearken to the defender you have these steel rims in order to keep your price from going up to the seventy thousand mile range so there's there's a little bit of disconnect there Makes me wonder how many are going to be in the off-road trim that we're talking about. How many of those are going to be on the market or how many are going to be just the base model without the rear locker? Yeah, that's that's to me, that's really the hard part that I, I'm having a hard time envisioning because I don't see who their customer base is. I feel like if I was someone who was looking for the really, really fancy... Land Rover experience, I would either be getting the Discovery 5 or buying a Range Rover. And I don't know that those individuals who are the diehard Defender fans are going to be like, yeah, this is what I want to pick up. And so I don't know exactly how they're appealing to their existing audience. And where I worry about it in the off-road segment is I do think they'll get some people in the United States that are saying, you know, the, the LR3 and the LR4 have sold well. And so it's going to be cheaper than a Discovery. And so if you want to get something that looks cool, it has a different look, it's unique, um, it's going to have all the luxuries that you want, you're going to get, but then you're not going to have that off-road package. So for those of us who are looking at saying, hey, I want to pick up the off-road version, maybe two or three years down the line, pick it up for maybe 30 grand where it's selling for 60 brand new, and I can get something that's basically been used as a soccer mom vehicle and pick it up and use it off-road, I'm just not sure how many of those off-road ones are actually going to exist on the marketplace and the other aspect that I don't know, and I'm having a hard time fathoming, and I don't know in the off-road market who they're going to steal from, right? I don't see Jeep guys going in and saying, mm, yeah, that's what I want to go pick up. I'm going to ditch my Rubicon or I'm going to ditch the Gladiator. Um, I don't really see them going that way. I could maybe see some individuals who are really unhappy with the Cherokee. The Cherokee did, they did, Jeep did do with the Cherokee what you had mentioned, is they basically took the Cherokee, the, the XJs, and 
turned him into a crossover, basically. And diehard yeah, die Cherokee forgot fans about are upset about it. Yes. But they've also sold tons of those Cherokees to non-diehard Cherokee fans. So um, it's definitely sold well. But the difference I, – I, so I don't know that they're going to steal any of those guys. And I'm having a hard time knowing how many people are – I, I don't imagine it's really hard to steal a Toyota guy in general. Um, I, so I'm just puzzled at who they're going to steal and bring into buying this vehicle as the off-road version. What are your guys' thoughts? It's it's going to be those who are diehard Land Rover fanboys who love the LR3 and are currently buying used LR4s. This is their next progressive step, and it's going to be a big upgrade for them over the LR3 and the LR4. But um, you really you really shot yourself in the foot on capturing a new market. You're absolutely right. And you, you see people going to Jeep, right? I mean, you can say, okay, I want a luxury four-wheel drive. What am I going to get? Well, I got the GX460, but Lexus now on the new 2020, what do you do with that Darth Vader bump bumper? You can't really modify that anymore. The bones of the vehicle is good, but you got a lot of cutting and chopping to fit a Prado bumper on there. So you have a lot of modifications to make make that work. And so you're saying, well, I can just get the Defender and I'm good to go. But a lot of your your GX460 buyers are diehard Toyota fans anyway because it's an old platform, and they're not going to go to Land Rover, like you said. And how many of those... How many of those GX460s are they selling, really? I mean, they're going to Jeep. And that's been my argument all along, is there is a market for ultra-luxury, die-hard, four-wheel drive vehicles. Not not super expensive like the G-Wagon. That's to the extreme. But let's talk about that for a second. Even Mercedes updated the, tw- the old G-Wagon to modern specifications and put independent front suspension on, and yet it is still the G-Wagon. Land Rover could have done that with the Defender, and they probably would have stolen Jeep Rubicon market share. And here's why. If you go to any of the dealerships and see what high-spec Rubicon and Rubicon Gladiators are going for, they're expensive. And someone might say, you know what? I'll spend an extra $15,000 or $20,000 to get sonars when I do water crossing, to get independent um, front and rear air, to get all my onboard, to get I don't have to buy roof rack anymore. You know, I'll spend another fifteen grand on top of my Rubicon to get all of that, right? I mean, there is a market there that they're not tapping, and they're really not – you you hit the nail on the head. They're really not attracting any new customers. I, I don't think they will, especially with the Bronco coming out. What what do they have over the Bronco even? It it just seems weird. You know, you mentioned even like the the Lexus is getting farther away. And I guess if you're competing with the, the Land Cruiser, the, the 200 Series Land Cruiser is awesome. But last time I looked at their sales numbers, they were well, not they that sell, awesome. They're eighty. They're eighty-five thousand no, dollars. used, and you can't. Yeah, get they're eighty-five thousand dollars brand yeah. new. Yeah, you're, you're. They're crazy expensive, and so it is kind of weird to think who are they fighting with. I guess maybe I, I haven't priced out a Grand Cherokee recently. Maybe they're trying to do that, but their advertising makes it seem like they're competing with the Wrangler. Yes. But then they put twenty-one inch tires on there, and I yes. think you're. 
or rims, I mean, and you're not competing with a Wrangler with 21 inch rims. Yeah, yes. you could you could argue that it would be a competitor for um, the Grand Cherokees, but the Grand Cherokees, I don't know. The, the, the Cherokees is kind of an in it, it's basically just a luxury SUV, and Jeep is coming out with the Jeep Wagoneer again, and it they're going to come out with the the Wagoneer and the Grand Wagoneer. And my understanding is that the Grand Wagoneer's entire purpose is to compete with high-end luxury SUVs. So we're talking about Escalades, Land Cruisers, and um, you could argue even Suburbans and Tahoes, but it's going to be more expensive than those. From my understanding, some people are saying it's going to be getting really, really close to the Land Cruiser price. And so I, I... and then they'll have the that'll be the Grand Wagoneer, and then they'll have the Wagoneer, which no one exactly knows what that's going to be. Basically, they need a seven seat vehicle because they don't have a seven seat vehicle. But I just, but with them releasing that as a seven seat vehicle, I still don't see any Jeep people jumping on board and buying a Defender. And like we've mentioned, you can hardly get a Toyota person to even think that another vehicle that's not a Toyota even exists. And so with those main criteria, it's near impossible for me to imagine who they're stealing. Now, I do think you have a good point in that there are a lot of guys who are hardcore Land Rover fans who love the LR3 and the LR4, and they, while they may be upset that this isn't as cool looking as the Defender, I don't feel like it's a large step back in looks versus the LR3 and the LR4. I actually still like the LR3 and the LR4, look better but i do like the defender enough that i don't think they're going to be turned off by it no there's some lr4 owners um on the forums i'm at and they pre-ordered their defenders when it was announced so that's that's who your market is but that's not a huge amount of sales and that's when you when you go around and you say and you arrogantly say there's no market for a rugged luxury suv and then you make a vehicle that appeals to a audience that's selling, you know, so many thousand per year and everyone comes back and they say Land Rover is selling more vehicles than they ever have. Well, that's true too. Cause back in the day they had the disco one and the Range Rover in America. That was it. You had two cars. Now you have the Vogue, the Range Rover, whatever, the Range Rover, whatever, the Range Rover, whatever. I mean, and they all look the right. same. And, and they and can't so, go off-road. Yeah, and so when you're looking for a luxury SUV to drive around the city, the Evoque is a great car. So they sell a lot of those, but there's an image that you need to uphold in order to capture that. And, and you said, I can't see a Jeep guy go to the Defender. Well, why would he? The Defender is in their product right now. The one, the ni- I said that. The, one, the 90, the 110, and the 130 is at JeepUSA.com. Yeah. Go spec it 100%. out. 100%. You know, I mean, it is there. And they are selling 200000 a year. And prices of the Gladiator were off the charts when it first oh, came Oh, they out, were selling for $65,000. Now, they've come down a lot. Like, I, I'm really, really tempted yes. by the Gladiator. I'm, I'm not going to buy one yet. But I just for fun, yesterday I was looking again at them. And I found one that was awesome for uh, $49,000. bucks. it is the Rubicon Edition. It is it completely decked out. It's everything that I would want, and I'm thinking, man, eighty four thousand or eighty four months, zero percent interest. I'm like, I'm Absolutely. like, I could trade in my wife's truck. <laughs> I could trade in my Jeep, and we could pick this thing up for less than my current payment on my Jeep right now. And I'm like, oh man, but I, 
I really do want to hold out, but just it, I'm just thinking it's it's hard for me. And Jeep has come in and said, "Look, we're going to make it still be extremely off-road capable." And the JLs are awesome. Like the in the interior of them, it's funny to me because I had a TJ before, and um, the difference between the TJ interior and the JK interior, you're like on a different planet. The TJs were so yes. basic. You had these ugly little dials. There was nothing nice about them. And the JK was such a massive step up. And I would have, like, it's kind of like the the step up, it's like almost like high school to college. That's kind of the step up from the TJ to the JK. But the JK to the JL is like going to the professional level. It's extremely nice. And the interiors, if you buy the leather interior, to me, you have it. You are driving around in a luxury vehicle, and it doesn't have a couple of things that some like. You're not going to have like the the sound dampening and stuff that like when you close the door on your BMW and it just makes that nice solid thud. But guess what? You can't also take the doors off, fold the windshield down, and take the roof off of your BMW either. So you know it's it, and that's why I'm like if I'm a Defender person or if I'm someone that's specking them and looking, I'm not. It doesn't tempt me. The number one temptation to me for the Defender is that I could get a front bench seat. And I know that that's insane because nobody wants that. And it's probably going to be so hard to find. But I've got three kids. I don't know if we're going to have any more. But if we do have one more, I'm officially outgrown my Jeep. And so I'm always in this weird speck of like, what am I going to get? My family doesn't come with me on all of my trips having a kid squeezed in in the front with me doesn't actually sound that nice but the ability to be able to do so makes it extremely tempting to me yeah it needed to be when when i was specking today for this podcast the defender really needed to be with the specs we were putting on about $15,000 cheaper to tempt an off-road enthusiast um if you could get the off-road technology they had for about 55 to 60 instead of 65 to 70, then you could start to get people rethinking the JL Rubicon. Because they're saying, you know, I get 99% of the performance of a JL Rubicon with all of the overlanding modifications plus the comfortable ride. And then I think those guys could actually go to Land Rover. And, you know, prices fluctuate and everything, and who knows what this COVID's going to do to the car market. They may have that kind of flexibility in their pricing because if you could get everything that you can get, the onboard air, the onboard water system, the storage box, the roof rack, the onboard winch, the armor they've provided in the 18-inch package for about 55 to 60, I think you'll actually steal market share. But 65 to 70, no. Once you hit 70,000, you're thinking, I'll get a 200 series Land Cruiser. Yeah, because it's awesome. If, if you're getting that high, you got to get the, the Land Cruiser. Yeah, awesome. I totally agree. And you had mentioned this earlier, Brent, that uh, in kind of like wrapping things up, but I, I do think that it should be noted that the Defender has some features that other vehicles don't. It's going to have a, a better. Um, capacity on the roof. It can. What did you say the load rating there was? It was like three hundred and twenty pounds. Yeah, dynamic. that's above any other current vehicle. That's above Jeep. That's above Forerunner. That's above the Land Cruisers. Um, 
to me, I think that's unprecedented. It, the The hard part is, is as far as I can tell, nobody cares. Like from a standpoint of so much weight ends up on people's roof racks. Um, so I don't know how much people are actually worried about that, but I do think that that's a, a, an important thing. It's payload capacity is above basically everything else in the class, which makes it the, if you're really trying to kit it out to be an overland vehicle, which is more what the style of off-roading that Mike and I, and, and I think you do is more of the overlanding type stuff in it, in that, it really is a good option. You're going to have better payload capacity um, so that you can add in all that extra gear. You can have your slides for your fridge and all of those things that basically make the rest of us be massively ex- ex- exceeding our, our GVW. And so uh, I think that part of it is actually really intriguing to me. Um, I, if this, if the suspension and things like that are as capable as it's being portrayed to be i think that that's going to be a huge intrigue i just am so on that fence of i just don't know who they're stealing so i kind of want to give you guys each a a second to kind of give your final thoughts on the defender and uh, and i guess where i'd want to go with that is if you had the money are you buying the defender or are you going to buy something else we'll let you go mike i've talked a lot yeah, I can go first. <laughs> Honestly, for the type of driving I do, I I would try it. I think it's cool, and I'm not a crazy off-roader. I, I, I like to go on back roads and see where they go, and I think that this could do that in style, and it is a seven-seat vehicle, which or you know, I need six seats anyway, but it can seat up to seven. I need, I need the extra seats. It's got all the stuff that I want. I can kit it well for off-road. I, I would totally try it. If I had the money, I'd give it a shot. You know, I've never owned a Land Rover or anything. I don't even know if I've ever ridden in a Land Rover. Um, but I think the Defender looks pretty awesome for what I do. But that's not hardcore off-roading. For 75000 in my closing, I'll, I'll mention two things we haven't actually covered. Um, I'm with Mike. I, I would give it a try especially because of my wife's back and my family situation, the loading I intend to do. We've covered that. Um, Two things that a pro and a con that we haven't hit. The pro is we didn't talk about that really cool um, rear view mirror they have, which ties into your backup camera. So if you have kids or gear in the back, you just hit a button on the dash or it auto senses when you have the bench seat and it turns the rear camera on your rear view mirror. So you always have visibility at all times. And I thought that was brilliant because how many of us have gear just stuffed in the back on especially longer trips? I I went overnight the other day and I couldn't use just last night. And just because of my spring bar tent and all the sleeping bags, it's ridiculous how much that crowds out your rear view. So that's one feature that I like that it has, which if I had that money would draw me toward it. The con is to get that price point I like, I've got to pick and to get the 18-inch wheels, we didn't hit that in the United States, you got to pick the four-cylinder turbocharged engine. And I'm just not completely sold. I'm old school. I know it's me. I'm not completely sold that a high-strung, three to 400-horsepower, forced-injected four-cylinder is going to last me 200,000 miles when for the same money I can get the tried-and-true 
5.7 liter V8 in the Toyota Land Cruiser. Now the Land Cruiser, I'm going to have to modify because off the shelf, the Land Cruiser is pretty weak, to be honest. But I don't know, man. Uh, I just can't. You're dropping $70,000 on a four-cylinder turbocharged motor. I, I, As a Land Rover guy, I would test drive it, and I would have to see if that's what I want. And I may get one still, but it's most likely going to be used. If I'm in the new market, I'm, I'm going Land Cruiser or JL. It's between those two with that kind of money, I think. Yeah, I... I'm super tempted by them because I, I just think it, it's cool. I, I, one thing that I do really think I want to emphasize in this is that I want as many vehicles in the off-road segment as possible. I want as many manufacturers to be pushing and innovating there as possible because it it makes everyone better, right? The cream rises to the top, and so... To me, to have Land Rover still be putting out something that's extremely off-road capable is only going to push Toyota engineers further, Jeep engineers further, Ford and Chevy are jumping in, Ford's putting in the Bronco, they really want it to compete with the Jeep Wrangler because they've just seen how well the Jeep Wrangler has sold over the past 20 years and especially since the JKU came out in 2007, the, the Jeep has just exploded in sales and so they want to come into that market and they're going to continue to push. They came out with the, they brought the Ford Ranger back to the United States because they saw how well the Tacoma is doing. Jeep put out the Gladiator um, and Nissan's revamping the uh, Frontier and the Titan. And then you've got, and so, and you've got Chevy putting out the, the Colorado and the Bison. And so to me, I see, I want that competition. So from that aspect, I'm super stoked about it. If I have 75000 bucks to spend on anything, there's no way in heck I'm buying the Defender. I think that it's awesome. It's it, There's really exciting things about it. But if I have $75,000, I'm buying a 2021 Jeep Gladiator with the diesel, and I'm going to have ten grand to spare. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please jump over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Jump in the comments. Let us know what you liked. Give us any feedback that you have. We really appreciate um, all of the listeners. Go over to Brent's channel, um, Ain't Life Great 4x4. I'm going to leave a link to his channel in the show notes so that you can go and check out his awesome adventures. Thanks so much for listening.